Hello, I'm Bryony Kidd, and this is the third episode of Contemporary Art Tasmania's podcast, What Are You Looking At? It's called Collection. So, buying art. People do it, but when, how, and why? Film and literature has long perpetuated the stereotype of the starving artist, to the extent that the general public might not be totally shocked to hear that it's difficult to make a living from artistic practice in contemporary Australia. But what's the reality? We know that some artists are selling work, commercially, and doing very well out of it. We know that galleries certainly are making money, or they wouldn't continue to operate. But what kind of art sells? And what about art that's not designed to sell? Ephemeral work, or installation, or a happening? It's clear that there are many strands to an individual career, and that different projects have different aims. But how does unsellable work fit into the overall shape of a career in the visual arts? Contemporary Art Tasmania's Pip Stafford spoke to a few people around town to delve into these questions. Um, I'm Tom O'Hearn and I draw pictures of poos and skulls and willies. Is that that close enough? That basically sums it up. Done. (laughs) And, And hair, I guess. Yeah, there's lots of hair, isn't it? Because mm. if an area doesn't look any good, you can just fill it with hair. <laughs> it generally looks good. Poo and penises and hair. How how do you sustain commercial practice? I, it's surprising people do buy really full on work. I did this picture of a French bulldog with a like a twelve meter penis. And um, someone buys that and it's in their house. And it's a really big picture. It's not like something you can just hide away in your bedroom or something. But people buy those things. I think it's good not to underestimate people. I don't know. It's, I just make... I try not to let it shape the work either way. Like to make something offensive for the sake of being... Oh, yeah, I've got to buy that. That's offensive. Or, or the other way, to tone it down. I just... Because I do like just drawing plants as well, without poos and things. So now might be a good time to speak to someone on the other side of this equation. Emma Bett of Bett Gallery, which is Tasmania's longest-running commercial gallery. Some artist's work just isn't commercial, but there are um, ways around that. And if an artist is keen to, to become involved in a commercial gallery, it's quite interesting to see where you can take it towards... Um, it being viably commercial. It's a very fine line um, and the the thing that's really important to me is that what whatever the artist is doing they have to be passionate about it. Um, they, you can't curb any of their passion or any of their drive just to make it sellable because it just shows up in the work and it's something that I've seen quite a bit. An artist will have a successful show or we'll see that something starts to sell and continually does the same thing over and over again and that just becomes flat. Um, so I always encourage artists to try not to think about selling the work, <clears throat> just to make whatever comes true to them and let me deal with the rest. Usually an artist um, that we show with will um, make a show for the space um, and so we'll put up what they've made. Um, I have heaps of faith in in my artists and um, if there's a work that they really want in the show, I put it in. Um, It's their call. 
Um, yeah, I'd never not put a work in just because I didn't think it was going to sell. Tom O'Hearn reflects on how gallery representation has influenced his career. It was probably changing as it went in, into representation because for years I'd made um, a work that was really commercially viable. So it was, um, uh, you know, it was ephemeral and painted directly to a wall and, like, you know, ridiculously big. And um, I just started making smaller work just um, because of the studio space I had and work on paper and um, that's just happened to be when I kind of got picked up I guess. And it felt a bit silly making all this work. I mean I had like this high kind of ideal like you know no one can buy this this is this must be deeper or something this must be more meaningful and then I just realized that that's kind of silly that just because someone can buy something, it doesn't mean it's any less meaningful. Like, my work's so meaningful that it's above money. That's It seems dumb. I mean, it's nice to make something that no one can buy. I just kind of, I, I kind of like the idea that these things I make go and have their own lives. Like they, I forget that I've made things and they go and do lots of stuff without me. I don't know if it's any more mature because I, I think there's something really beautiful in making something that no one can own. But there's also something really beautiful in making something that, that just goes and has its own life. Next up, here's Hobart-based artist Tricky Walsh. The commercial stuff actually ended up paying for everything else, which is why, like, the major reason, you know, apart from rent paying and stuff, it was the major reason that I really did it. Um, and also... Uh, you know, having an ongoing deadline or someone on your back to make work is actually really good for you, I think, as well. So it made me probably busier than I wanted to be, but it got me into a good routine work-wise as well. But yeah, I mean, it paid for all the things that I could do indulgently on the side, which was things that no one was, you know, ever going to buy, which is good. Tricky Walsh says she used to have two streams to her practice one experimental and one commercial. Recently, the two have begun to merge. Straight painting, commercial, easy stuff, and then sculpture and... I don't even know what I've done. Things things that were more installation-based that in this country, at least, is not perceived as commercial, which actually in a lot of other countries probably would be. But, you know, it's... The market here is very different, it's quite conservative. In the Australian context, there's often an intermingling of the commercial and experimental streams of art, but in Tasmania, they seem to be kept fairly separate. Tricky Walsh. You know, video led the way. You know, it's an easy and accessible technology, and then I think it's opened it up for other people to be able to go, oh, maybe I'll collect some other thing that I don't get, but looks pretty. Emma Bett agrees. I still bash my head against the wall here trying to convince people that it's okay to buy video art, let alone experimental pieces. You know, they just can't. It takes time and education, and um, so it'll happen. But, you know, the high-end collectors have been buying video art for decades, um, and people still here haven't caught up, or in Australia generally, it's, it's pretty behind. So the same thing will happen with with experimental art, but it's it's a difficult one, and that gap is very large. 
And there's that whole other responsibility of having to educate your audience and that sort of goes triple fold in the commercial industry because, you know, people have to outlay cash for this so they don't trust themselves necessarily. Mm. They want validation from institutions or, you know, a great gallerist telling them, yeah, this is a good idea. <laughs> and that, that, that's probably what it takes as well, actually, is the gallery going in between, sort of trusting something and... And pushing it the same way that they'd push a landscape painting. Well, I'm with Bet and Mars Gallery in Melbourne, and both of them pretty much let me do what I want, which is really nice. <laughs> Sorry, guys. No, they've actually been really supportive of that so far. <laughs> Might run out at some point, but ah, oh, we'll see. Um, and and more credit to them, really. I think to know that. You know, they're kind of ambassadors for whatever dumb shit that artists decide to do. And <laughs> they do it exceptionally well. And it's great. For Emma Bett, the appreciation should be mutual. I, you know, I say to them, this, this is a 30-year-plus commitment. So you have to think about it pretty, pretty strongly and be really comfortable with it. Um, and so, you know, all artists... Um, expect and need different things. There's no sort of one size fits all answer to that. Some artists are really confident and like to manage their own stuff and just like to use the space and our name for somewhere to show, whereas other artists need a lot more attention um, and, uh, and are happy to have more attention. So it's all, it's all a pretty different journey for all of them. Speaking of being in it for the long haul, Peter Fay is a collector and curator, originally from Sydney, but now living in Hobart. He describes the beginnings of his art obsession. It was the 1960s and he was living in Leeds. They were arranged in order of um, winners and losers. So the, um, the high achievers were sheltered under the awnings of the, of the um, arcade and the losers were exposed to the elements down at the end. And um, there was certainly, and I was hurrying to catch a bus. And then in the last artist along the line um, had a work there and I scurried past. It was cold, it was freezing, it was middle of winter. And I was running, as I said, for this bus but I just had to come back. It was the most extraordinary picture. And um, and it was called Pink. And to this day, I feel rather, um, um, what's the word, guilty about it, I suppose, in that she was offering it for a pound. Um, and I'd hardly stopped to look at it when she said I could have it for 50p. So <laughs> and it was a picture. Um, it was, a, it was hard to describe what sort of a um, uh, genre you'd put it in, but I suppose you'd say it was figurative. Two figures in a bed, but it was like one of those Escher drawings. The moment, No matter which way you went around it, the thing sort of kept lying down or standing up. The early 80s was also an exciting time to be buying art. There were a lot of new art initiatives in Sydney and Melbourne. I was living in Sydney. And um, a, a young, a, a young um, school, young wave of young artists coming through. So it was a good time to be looking. And 
I didn't have any. I was a school teacher um, then, and certainly no um, uh, financial uh, resources. But it was possible to to get good stuff, for, and galleries were happy for you to pay them off and all sorts of things. So that so from from one or nothing to one to a long period of nothing, and then um, uh, a sort of a the genie was out of the bottle. Um, but it was never a sense of going to collect. That wasn't the, that wasn't the uh, raisin that we went about things. It was just that the, this was the language that was speaking to me. Peter eventually donated much of his collection to the National Gallery in Canberra. But there's some works that he couldn't donate even if he wanted to. It's really an intellectual decision though I do have maybe half a dozen to a dozen quite conceptual pieces um, that um, have ne- well they don't exist because they've never been made. Lucy Bleach is a Hobart based artist and also the coordinator of sculpture at the Tasmanian College of the Arts at UTAS. I've never had a commercial practice um, and it's something I've never thought of. <laughs> I've been always been driven by the kind of work that I want to make, and that tends to be um, traditionally not not sellable, because it exists for a short time, and then it's gone. Uh, which is not to say that there can't be residue in terms of material or artefact, or there can't be documentation. It's a material-based practice, but it's also conceptually driven. Um, I'm very interested in um, providing experiences for people um, to be able to have a, a, uh, a sensorial response to the presence of the work. And that can be about the scale of it, it can be about the duration of it, or it's the way that it changes or shifts. Um, it can also be about the, the, its kind of collapse as well. Um, yeah, so every work's different. There's, I don't work with a particular material. Um, it may respond to a site, uh, but it's also about, yeah, it's about conjuring experience, I would say. There's no escaping the fact that money is a key issue for artists, even if it's the deliberate avoidance of it they're thinking about when it comes to their art. Ever since leaving art school, I would always have a job to support my practice, and that job could be working in cafes, which I did forever. Um, and also when I left art school, my lecturer said to me, right, you better get a trade behind you because the way that you work, you'll never support yourself unless through grants and things like that. It was kind of a joke, but it was a great thing. So I, I got a trade behind me in Bush Regeneration, which fed into my practice. Uh, and then um, after doing postgraduate study, I um, got into teaching and now I'm full-time lecturer. So that supports my practice. And I've always felt very clear that um, by having a day job, whatever that is, it enables me the freedom to do the work that I want to do. Tricky Walsh, meanwhile, says balancing the two threads of what she does has become easier over time. I think I had so many different things going on. It was just exhausting trying to sort of maintain everything at the same time. (laughs) You know, it's like tending a garden and having to tend all the things in it equally after a while it's just like you know this would be easier maybe if these folded in a bit and then I guess I started to conceptually see threads that I could find them together in as well 
And um, I don't know, I, I like the idea that, that you can make people a little uncomfortable or see something that they're not used to seeing. I think it's kind of a responsibility of the artist. And in the commercial world, I think it's more necessary than giving them what they expect. And that's probably to my detriment occasionally. <laughs> I've shot myself in the foot a lot commercially by like by choice because I think that no one should be that comfortable and I don't think you should give people what they expect I, I think it's better to you know to be a bit jarring about it I've actually bought things that have never left the gallery I've bought work where I knew that it, it had a very short shelf life because of the materials being used um I'll often speak to artists then about that. If uh, are they aware? Um, because a lot of it, it, knowing that at some stage I'm, I'll gift it or give it to a, or try to give it to a museum. Um, I am aware that many museums won't won't touch, no matter how good good whatever that might mean. But no matter how good it might be, if the materials are, are self destructing or um, and then they just won't, they won't consider accepting that. But that's a, 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 an issue for the artist, not for me. Um, no, I, I don't worry about where it might go or how it might fit in. It, I think, for me, I know, inst I know instinctively. Tricky Walsh, for one, thinks about that kind of thing whether what she's making now will still exist in 10 or 20 years' time. I've done some public art pieces and that comes with, you know, it needs to be together for 15 years kind of thing, like the thing in the tea mag. It all, all the materials had to be sort of age-tested and have all, you know, specs and everything. So doing those gets you in the habit of kind of going, well, this has to last a period of time. And it kind of irritates me and that's why I guess I still do things that will fall apart and not work to offset, you know, this kind of weird concept of permanence, which I'm not really that fond of. What Are You Looking At is edited and produced by Pip Stafford and myself for Contemporary Art Tasmania. We'd like to thank our interviewees, Tom O'Hearn, Tricky Walsh, Emma Bett, Peter Hay and Lucy Bleach. To find out more about our programs, head to www.contemporaryarttasmania.org. What Are You Looking At can be found on our website as well as on iTunes and SoundCloud.